Today's reading is from the book of Job. He was a man who went from riches to ruin, not the other way around, including the death of most people he loved. We pick up the story around halfway in the rather long book, just after his friends have yet again urged him to confess. As from their belief about how God works, Job must have deserved what's happened to him. After all, if he was a really good man, bad things wouldn't have happened to him. Job just needs to admit his sin and his agony will cease. But Job keeps insisting on his innocence and he still pursues God in the face of everything that's happened to him. I've been reduced to skin and bones and have escaped death by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, my friends, have mercy, for the hand of God has struck me. Must you also persecute me like God does? Haven't you chewed me up enough? Oh, that my words could be recorded. Oh, that they could be inscribed on a monument, carved with an iron chisel and filled with lead, engraved forever in the rock. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, Yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I'm overwhelmed at the thought. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. It's a pretty heavy text today. So let's lighten it up as we start. Do you remember this guy right here? I told you a few weeks ago, this is uh, Mo, our little rescue terrier. And I also told you a few weeks ago that he he hates all other small animals. He wants to kill them all. Just kill them all, even the stuffed ones, if they have a squeaker in them especially. Well, I think animals talk because there is a wild kingdom conspiracy that's being hatched against my poor little dog. It started uh, a couple of months ago. Mo and I are out for a late night walk. It's really dark outside. I've got that nerdy headlamp on. <laughs> oh, you laugh. You'll hear, you wait, wait till you get to the punchline of this story. I wanted to stay away from the snakes and the creepy crawly things, you know. Have my little light on. We're walking. We're almost back to the house. And I hear what sounded like the distant closing of a car door. And so I stop. And I look, nothing. And as I turn back around, three feet away in my headlamp is this. A great horned owl, the thump was him leaving his perch. And he is descending down to eat my dog at the end of the leash. (laughs) If there had been moving video footage of what happened next, I would either be a millionaire or a YouTube sensation right now today. Because in that instant, I remembered when in danger of wildlife, get as big as possible. And so me and my headlamp are going, 
And out of the corner of my eye, I can see Mo, and he looks like, I don't know, what's it called, a griffin, or one of the, like on the old Scottish flag. <laughs> the owl makes a last-minute adjustment and goes right over my head. And I picked up Mo, put him under my arm, and ran like Bigfoot was chasing me. True story. Ask my wife. She was giving us both CPR by the time we got back to the house. <laughs> story two. Just a few weeks ago, uh, there was a Sunday a few weeks ago that I was a little off my game and tired, and we'd had the concert and all, but there was another reason. Early Sunday morning last month, I was up about 5.30 or so and drinking some coffee and looking at my sermon notes at the bar in our kitchen, and Mo gets up early with me, as he does every Sunday. And then he wants to go outside, so me and him go outside on the porch, and then he wants to go out on, in the yard, so we step out in the yard. It's right at daylight. Standing there in the yard, I hear a noise around the corner of the house. Me and Mo walk around the corner of the house. And from me to the grosses, there was this. His name is Hamby now. He's Hammock Bay's own black bear. He's about 200 pounds, every bit of it. I saw him real close. And there we are, the three of us. I'm in my pajamas. I haven't combed my hair. Mo's going, again. And it was like that scene in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly where Clint Eastwood, and the, it's a three-way standoff, and everybody's just standing there, and we're just, we just look at each other for a minute. And I made the first move. <laughs> and when the bear made his reciprocal move, I put Mo under my arm like I was Herschel Walker running for a touchdown <laughs> and nearly tore the door off getting back inside the house. <laughs> Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my! If you live in Florida, in Freeport anyway, it's snakes, owls, and bears. Oh, my. And I suspect that Mo and I, before it is over, will have an alligator encounter and a Florida panther encounter before it is over. You know, we're so civilized. We're so clean and domesticated. When uh, we have an encounter like that with something that is truly wild, it is unnerving, is it not? Little cookie-cutter homes, dotting plan developments, and curb curbed cul-de-sacs, 21st century luxury keeping us safe and sound, and just outside the door it is a wild, untamed animal kingdom, reminding us that if it wasn't for air conditioning and screened wire, none of us would be living in this place. I told Chris Grant, who was from Northern Ireland and spoke here a few weeks ago, he had never been to this part of the country, and I just said to him, if you go outside, any animal you encounter, insects, animals, whatever, anything you encounter wants to kill you. <laughs> and when you live somewhere like Northern Ireland that does not have stinging bugs and snakes and such things, it might have been a little of an exaggeration, but I think it was a fair warning nonetheless. I've been reminded of all this wildness this week as I have wrestled with this and really wrestled with today's text. And I've been reminded that the, that the Bible itself is wild and untamed. 
I know we have it house trained. We uh, have the Hebrew scriptures over there and the Christian scriptures over there. And that's the prophets and that's the law and that's the epistles and those are the gospels. And then we have 10,000 books of systematic theology to tell us how it all is sorted out and what the proper way to believe is. And you can just see as you begin to read some of that organizing thought about the scriptures, you can just see the sidewalks getting poured and HOA forming and the little cul-de-sac being built. And it's also nice and organized and comfortable and suburban. But the truth is you have to be very careful with the Bible. It's dangerous. It's unpredictable. I think this is what English preacher Charles Spurgeon said a century ago when he said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. I think that's what he was getting at. Let the Bible speak. Let the Bible roar if it must. And if that shakes the ground or if we find that disorienting, then so be it. If it sends us scurrying for safety, if it sends us questioning some of our long-held assumptions, then so be it. And we have to find a way sometimes just to live with the tension of it all and to respect it. Today's text comes again from the Revised Common Lectionary. I've tried to stick with the lectionary this year since Easter. It's good discipline. Rather than going and picking texts, let, let the text get picked for you and wrestle it to the ground. And it is a reading from the book of Job. It falls a little more easy on the English ear the Christian ear. That is, the meaning seems easy enough for we Jesus folks in the Western world. But there is nothing easy about this text. It is regarded by Jewish rabbis as one of the most difficult passages to translate in the entire Old Testament. And of course, there's nothing easy about the book of Job either. If indeed the Bible is a wild kingdom, then Job is probably the kraken. This big, deep, tentacled monster that we really don't know what to do with. Annie Dillard said this, and it came to mind this week. She said, on the whole, I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible. (laughs) Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we are dealing with? It is madness to wear straw and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and draw us out to where we can never return. With today's text, it does feel like an awakening to me. We cannot return to how we have understood this text in the past. How have we understood it? Well, we usually conclude that Job is talking about and anticipating his resurrection. The key verses again, verses 25 through 27. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see Him for myself. Yes, I will see Him with my own eyes. The majority of Protestant thought has understood the text that exact way. We impose a post-Easter understanding onto Job's situation. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with the resurrection view. Scripturally, in the New Testament, the case is such that resurrection and vindication is everything. I will live again as Christ lived again, and my life will be made to make sense, even if my life was filled with suffering and inexplicable injustice. But that is not what Job means here. Let's put ourselves in Job's shoes. Now, we don't want to walk very far in Job's shoes because it's an uphill climb. Job is one of the most tragic figures in all of literature. But by getting in his shoes for a few minutes, maybe we can understand. Job lived probably during the time of Abraham. And this is probably the oldest oral story that we have anywhere in the Scriptures. Job lived 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago. It was a long time. And in his time, resurrection was not something people during that era understood was even possible. In the Jewish mind of that time period, you lived and you died and you got what you got in your lifetime. And if God was on your side and you had been obedient and you had followed God's laws, then you would prosper in this life. If you were disobedient, if you had not done the right thing, then judgment would come to you in your life. There might be something waiting beyond the grave, but probably not. Do not let that alarm you this morning. That's always been there when you've read the text. Always. There is no developed idea of the resurrection in the ancient Old Testament. So, to Job. You know what happens to Job as we find him in this book? A lightning bolt strikes his herd and kills all his animals. A marauding group of bandits come in and steal all of his camels. There's a disease that strikes every living thing that he has. He has ten children. They're all at their oldest, oldest brother's house having a party and a tornado strikes the house and kills all of his children. And all that happens on one morning. A few days later, he's struck with some crippling disease. His skin ulcerates and opens up. His joints begin to burn as if they're on fire. He can't sleep. He is tortured in his body and by the emotions and by his loss. And he sits down to mourn everything that's happened. And his wife says to him, why don't you curse God and die? Thank you, hon. <laughs> and then his friends show up. Job's comforters. You know what they ask? Why? Why has this happened to you, Job? Why have you suffered like this? And they have an answer. Job, you must have done something really bad for this kind of trouble to find its way into your life. That's the only explanation that they have. Because the thinking is this, God is perfect, God's laws are perfect. If you're doing right, if you're following the law, then everything goes right. If you're not following the law, 
If you're not being obedient to God, it's going to become obvious real soon because God's going to get you. Now, believe it or not, that kind of thought hangs on to this very day. Does it not? But we read in the very opening of the book of Job these words. There once was a man named Job who was blameless. A man of complete integrity. And he feared God and stayed away from evil. So we got a problem. The conclusion of the day doesn't match the situation. And what we learn real quick from the book of Job is this. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Sometimes karma doesn't work out the way we thought it would. Sometimes a person can be a, a person of faith and justice and be right and good, righteous, holy, and their life can go all to pieces for reasons that we do not know. And someone else can just be a crook and dirty and low down and cheat every person they meet and their life is just charmed and they leave this world eventually and their comeuppance never catches up with them. And you look at those situations and you cannot say, well, God must have been on their side and God was against that person. We don't know what's going on. That's the story of Job. There's a whole lot going on behind the scenes that we are not privy to, that we cannot explain. And Job faces his sufferings. Now, I want you to catch this today. Job faces his sufferings without the assurance of resurrection. The idea of resurrection does not enter the Jewish mind until about 200 years before Jesus. He's in the dark. He's suffering. He's in pain. He's lost everything. He's been, he's been abandoned. And there's no one to come along to him and say, well, Job, don't worry. It'll be better in the sweet by and by. No assurance of that. Don't worry, Job. You'll see your children again one day. They didn't believe that. Don't worry, Job. It'll all work out in the end. That thought would have blown his mind. All I've got is this life. All I've got is now. Rabbi Aaron Tinker says, Job's worldview was as such. If God was perfect, and if disability and disease and disaster were divine punishments for sin, then the sufferer's punishment is always deserved. What hopelessness someone in Job's position would have felt to have his back pushed against the wall like that. He has nothing except hope. Maybe it's faith. Maybe it's chutzpah. That's a good Yiddish word. Chutzpah. Audacity. Because they all look a whole lot alike sometimes. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and He will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed in my body, I will see God. I will see Him for myself. I will see Him with my own eyes. 
Even surrounded by these false comforters and losing everything and having no theological assurance, no promise that everything is going to work out, Job is still able to say, I believe that God is out there somewhere and before I leave this world, God is going to show himself to me. And when he does, my body will be restored. You'll see that sometimes there is no answer to the questions of how or why, but there is a question, answer to the question of what. When you don't have the answer, when you don't know what to do, what do you do? You just keep going. You keep pressing on. You keep holding on. Because that is all Job had left. And here he is at his very best. He has no comfort only sorrow. He has no direction, only the unknown. He presses on one step at a time, one stubborn, contrary inch at a time. He probably felt like he had concrete around his ankles, a heavy bag of question marks on his back. Tears are streaming down his face. He has all the speed of a slug, but he presses on. He cannot quit. Forget this stuff about the patience of Job. There's no such thing as the patience of Job. But there is the perseverance of Job. He was angry. He shook his fist at heaven. He sparred with those around him. He demanded answers. That's not the actions of a patient man, but he didn't quit. And those are the actions of a persevering man. That is faith. Faith is not... Having all the answers. There are no answers to some questions in this world. It's not knowing every step of the way. Because many of our steps are completely in the dark. Faith is not being protected from trouble or suffering or cancer or poverty or loss. It's not this gullible smile even though your heart is breaking sentimentality rubbish. That is nothing more than wishful thinking. Faith is certainly not a big payoff, a spiritual Disneyland, where I just believe and all my wishes will come true. No. Faith might be simple, but it is not naive. Its eyes are open, it sees the world for what it is, and it knows there are no shortcuts, no easy fixes, no silver bullets. There is only tenacity. There is only going on, moving on, and keeping on. And that's the wildness, the untamed part of this text. It's so ancient, it's so old, predating all of our understandings and all of our assurances, but it is also the witness. It holds the origins of who we are as people of faith. We have faith not because we think we will get what we want, because we think it will keep us healthy and wealthy and safe and comfortable. We have faith, if it is faith at all, because we believe in an ultimate justice, a final grace, a God who vindicates and makes things right, even if we cannot yet understand what that looks like. You know, I'm just too blessed to be stressed. Please don't say that around me. Now, that might be your favorite saying, and I'm not picking on you. Just don't say that around me. I hate it. 
It makes me want to be like Job and start fighting the people around me. Yes, we're blessed. But how many of us have put our head down on a pillow at night and said, God, I have no idea. I have no idea if you're even there. But I got no other place to go. Haven't we all lived with the question marks? Haven't we all had to face either going on or quitting? Persevere or just curse God and die? You're making a sort of a stark decision today. I don't know where else it goes. You hang on and you keep on praying that one day it makes sense. There's a much used and often misreferenced story that seems to come from Germany at the end of World War II. It was in the town of Cologne. A group of U.S. soldiers were going house to house as the war efforts were winding down. And they entered a basement, a cellar that had obviously been a safe house for Jews. And it's an appropriate story today on this weekend where in our country we remember veterans who have served in the armed forces. But also on this weekend, history recalls the Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, beginning in Germany, November 9th and 10th, 1938, the very beginning of the Holocaust. We're in towns all over Germany. Jewish businesses were broken into. All the, the, the windows were broken out of Jewish, Jewish homes. Hundreds were rounded up that very first night. Scores were murdered and killed. And the program to eliminate the Jewish people began. November 9 and 10, 1938. Jews had, had been hiding in this room at some point where they, where they were or if they'd even survived, it was impossible for this group of soldiers to know. But on the wall was a simple poem that encapsulates true faith. And it is a summary of all I've tried to say today. And in its context, it is as powerful a thing as you will ever read, considering who wrote it, the anonymous person, wherever they may be. With the Star of David inscribed on the wall were these words. I believe in the sun, even when it is not shining. I believe in love, even when I cannot feel it. I believe in God, even when he is silent. That is faith. May God give that to all of us.